Hi guys, um, my name is Sarah, and I'll be continuing the Bible reading. So, 21 verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, an eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl, the great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, hello again, everyone. Uh, really glad to be able to open this part of the word together as we think about uh, this last topic.
topic of heaven in our eschatology series tonight. So how about we pray, ask for God's help and get into it together. Father, thank you that you are with us, that you are powerful. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and the hope that we have in him. And we pray that tonight you would impress this hope on our hearts deeply so that we might live as people overflowing with hope by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the most helpful books I read before I got married to my wife, Sarah, was this book called You, Me and Forever. And it's um, by Francis Chan. The first chapter is actually titled, Marriage is Not That Great. Um, And he's basically saying, God is at the centre of your life. And if you try to put anything else at the centre, it's not going to work. So don't try and put your marriage at the centre of life. That's not what life is all about. God is what life's all about. And you need to have your life oriented around God and your marriage oriented around God. And if you put anything else at the centre, you're going to crush that thing or you're going to crush yourself and it's not going to work. Well, I'm not actually here to talk about marriage. I'm here to talk about heaven tonight. And there's so many things in life where the, the best advice is just lower your expectations a bit so that you don't get disappointed. But the Bible tells us that soon Christians will not be separate from God anymore, that we will be face to face with him and seeing our saviour, Jesus Christ, that we will be with him forever and So now that actually shapes the way we live our lives. And this is the one thing in the Bible where God says, raise your expectations. Let them go through the roof. There's no limit on your expectations about heaven. There is no limit to the joy that you will experience when you come face to face with your Saviour and your King, Jesus. So raise your expectations for this. So I hope that's what happens a little bit for us tonight. I've got three points for us in this last uh, talk tonight, this last eschatology series talk. The first one is where we live now and the problem of alienation. The problem of alienation. And when I say that word alienation, I'm not talking about green monsters, but separation, alienation from God. Have you ever wondered why we can't see God? It's because way back in the garden at the very beginning of creation, almost on the first day of creation, humans were banished from the garden because of their rebellion against God. We can't see God because we can't be in his presence because he's a holy God and we are sinners. And it's not that God's playing games with us or he's trying to keep us guessing. That's the reason we can't be in his presence because we're rebels against him. So Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. Ever since we've been following in their pattern of life, turning our backs on God as the human race. And we now live in this world that is out of order, that is disjointed, that is not working properly. And it affects us as human beings, but it also affects the whole of creation. I'm going to read this from Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 20. 
The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Our world has been covered with thorns and thistles, with hard ground that's difficult to work, uh, labour's hard. Uh, The whole world has just been dragged into this frustrating experience because of our sin against God, and that's just how things are. There's this man called Paul Kingsworth who lives in England and was an editor of the Ecology magazine. He was an atheist and an environmentalist and an activist for the planet. And he was searching for spiritual meaning and so he became a Buddhist for five years and practised meditation. But he became disillusioned with Buddhism and he then joined a Wiccan coven. In 2020, he was reading a book by a Christian philosopher and he realised something, that he was looking for a truth that he could surrender his life to. And he also realised for the first time what Christianity is all about. He realised that Christianity, the story of Christianity, is a story of humanity's rebellion against God. He'd never known that before. That's what it's all about. For a long time, he had seen that the world is breathtakingly beautiful and something worth defending, but he'd also seen that it's extremely broken and that people are broken. And for the first time in his life, he realised that the main problem is the human heart turned against the Creator. And he, that was the first step for him in becoming a Christian, being baptised as a Christian. And now he sees that the greatest Problem with the world is a spiritual problem, a spiritual crisis for all people everywhere. Rebellion against the Creator. That's what the Bible tells us, and it explains the state of the world. A hostile, difficult place to live. So we live in this world separate from God, but soon, this is the second thing I want us to see tonight, soon those who are in Christ will live in this world where all things are made new. That's the future that we glimpsed in Revelation 21 and 22 in our readings. That those who have put their faith in Christ have been added to a guest list of the most awesome celebration of all. The celebration of where God and humanity are reconciled as God's people in Christ come back to him face to face and enjoy him forever in this new creation. And I can't wait for that future to come. Yes, life might be pretty good here in Sydney, but the more I go on in life, and I'm only 34, but the more I go on, I just see the brokenness of my life and our world and so many people's lives and that we need redemption. We need this day of salvation. Someone might say, though, doesn't this sound like a divine version of that show, Um, maths, you know, married at first sight. The first time you see God, then you spend forever with him. But no, the cry of the human heart from the day of birth is to be with our creator. That's what we deep down long for. That's what everyone on this planet longs for, to be with the God who made us, who knows us, who loves us more than we even know ourselves. 
So have a look. Open your Bible up to Revelation 21. If you can't find it, it should be pretty much the last page of the Bible. Revelation 21, and we'll start at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Book of Revelation is a bit like if you took a computer and an iPad to a tribal group who'd never seen technology before, and you said, okay, explain what you're seeing. And they might say, well, uh, it's a beehive kind of thing, and it's got vines coming out of it, and in the beehive there's suns and little stars and lights, and sometimes we see little people coming up on them, and we hear voices coming out of them, and it's they don't have the words to explain what they're seeing. How can the Apostle John explain what he sees in the heavenly realm? Language almost strains under the weight of what he is seeing. He has to use metaphors and analogies and comparisons because that's as far as it goes. A new heaven and a new earth, a whole new world order. People talk about flipping a house. You buy a run-down house, you renovate it, and then you sell it for a profit. This is the moment where God flips the whole universe. The first heaven and the first earth here refers to the world that we live in now, with all of its brokenness. And in the form that we know it, one day it will no longer exist. It will never be spoken of again. It will be renewed and remade and redone, and then a new one will come. And it may have a connection to the old earth, to this earth, just like a seed has a connection to the plant that grows from it, just like our bodies will have a connection to our resurrected bodies. Uh, But it's a whole different order of magnitude. It, It is a new creation. And it's going to be amazing because the same God who made hummingbirds and ocean swell and thunderstorms and honey and fabric and wood and raw materials and minerals and precious stones and music is going to create this new world. And if God made this world and in all of its beauty and amazingness and this world is broken, imagine how great the next world will be. Please never think that Heaven will somehow be more boring than this world. And there's no sea, which is Revelation's symbolic way of saying there will, there will no, be no more evil. Because the sea in the Bible is that place of evil and chaos. And unlike in the Garden of Eden, where the snake could come in, in the new creation there is no space for evil to come. Have a look at verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So here is the match that's truly made in heaven, the matching of Jesus and his people. And I want you to think about the kind of pride and joy that you might feel looking at Sydney Harbour and the bridge and the opera house. Well, that doesn't compare to the kind of pride and joy that the Jews felt when they thought about their city, Jerusalem. 
because Jerusalem was the closest thing to heaven on earth. It was the place where they had the temple where God dwelt with the people, where they could worship him and be in relationship with him freely. And there was this place of uh, a bit, the ability to have devotion to God and, and where they came together as his people and had joy and celebrations. And John sees the church in the new world as the new Jerusalem, a glorified heavenly city descending, being brought to Jesus as his bride. I've got lots of good memories of weddings that I've been to over the years, not just my own, but other people's weddings of beautiful brides, of handsome grooms, of amazingly dressed people coming to celebrate, sharing in the joy of this couple coming together, the community coming to watch on. And this is another picture that's used of the church. The church is called Christ's Bride. It is a collective of radiant people meeting their Saviour and Lord at last. And maybe on that day, the Bride of Christ, the church, will think, we sang about you, Jesus, and we sat in small groups and we talked about your word and we tried to get to know you better. And we prayed to you and we we told other people about you. And we tried to strain our minds to think about the day that is coming and and we celebrated you. We we drank the bread and, and, and we drank the juice, the wine, to remember what you'd done for us. And we told others about you. And now at last we're here with you face to face. At last. Have a look at verse 3 with me. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. You know that moment in the doctor's surgery where you come and share your symptoms and the doctor says, yeah, I know what's going on for you. It's print on the printer and they print a script and they say, this will sort you out. It's a moment of relief, of joy. Well, as one of Jesus' people, you will one day appear before him and God will say, I'm making all things new. No more living apart from me, the lover of your soul. I'm now with you here forever and everything, everything will be okay. And I long for that, not only for myself, but for our church and for the church across the world. Imagine the other people that will be there. The believer who's been separated from their family for decades in a prison because of their witness to Christ. The the stillborn baby, the, the person who was faithful to Christ for their whole life, even though their life circumstances were just so difficult. The young Christian mother and her children who were killed by terrorists for their faith. All these people raised to new life in the new world. A few years ago, I was working with a pastor whose teenage son passed away from cancer. And at the Thanksgiving service for for his son, he said through tears that 
He has been worried about his son for so long, but he didn't need to be worried anymore because now he knew his son was safe, that he's with the God who loves him. Have a look at verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. We thought a couple of weeks ago about hell in our series. And it's a real place. It's, it's the alternative to heaven. And you, you go to one or, or the other. And the Bible calls it the lake of fire, the, the second death for those who've shut God out from their lives. And now God shuts them out from his kingdom. And the Bible tells us that we deserve that future. All of us deserve that future because of our hearts that have said no to our creator, that have turned from him, that have decided to become gods of our own lives. But through Jesus and his work alone, we've moved from headed to hell as our destination to headed to heaven, headed to the new creation. And the question is, have you, have you trusted in your good works? No. Have you trusted in saying the right prayers? No. Have you passed the theology quiz? No. Did you serve in the right ministry team? No. Did you go to the right church? No. The question is, have you trusted Jesus? Have you put your faith, your confidence into him and his death in your place? Then you will go from headed to hell to headed to this new creation, heaven. In John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. If you have Trusted Jesus now, you will be with him in the world to come. If you have a relationship with Jesus now, that relationship is eternal and death cannot stop it. You've already begun eternal life. And if you know him now, you will know him in eternity. So have confidence. Well, finally, all of this means that we live with a present hope. We live with hope. This week in the Sydney Harbour, I saw a big cruise ship um, being towed across the harbour and on the back was written, like no place on earth. Pretty big claim. And I'm not sure that those who went on the Ruby Princess would agree with that. But even on a perfect cruise where everything was exactly right, that vision is too small, isn't it? God calls us to live lives that look forward to a future with him. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is 
Seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Having the hope of God's future in our lives changes everything about our lives. Hope speaks to our sufferings and it says they are not permanent. They are momentary. They're not going to go on forever. And in fact, those sufferings are helping you to look to Jesus and bind yourself tighter to him. Hope gives us perspective. It tells us that the best day of our lives is not the best day we will experience. That the good things that we have are not the best things that we will receive. That the glories of this life are not worth comparing to the glories we will soon experience. Hope trains our desires so that we're not falling for the lies of this world that tell us that we need to get everything for ourselves and live for ourselves and protect ourselves but we can have our hearts captivated by what God is giving to us, free of charge. Hope gives us a goal that the rest of God is coming where we can be with him, be with his people and him forever. And so we need to keep running and keep pursuing that day. Hope actually shapes our aims in ministry because our deepest desire is that we want people to have a relationship with God in this new world that he's creating. That is what we want. And we might care if we're on the wrong side of history, but we care far more if we're on the wrong side of eternity. Hope speaks to our joy in Jesus now. It's just a foretaste of the inexpressible Joy that is coming. There's a man called Viktor Frankl who was a doctor who survived the death camps of World War II. And he explored the reason why some people did do well in the death camps and some did not do well. That some gave up, that some crumbled. He found that it had to do with the meaning that people had in life and what they hoped in. And for the people that he saw that hoped in earthly things like their career and their family and their social status, that many of those people completely gave up and collapsed in the camps because all those things were taken away. But for those who had themselves tied to something beyond this world, to God, they could withstand the atrocities and horrors of those camps because they knew that there was something greater and, and, and that even what was happening to them, awful as it was, couldn't take away that ultimate meaning. And God's words, friends, are trustworthy and true. That's what he tells us. God doesn't lie. Jesus has gone through the grave and he's come out the other side. This isn't just a crutch to help us live a better life. This is the truth. And if you trust the things of this world, eventually 
you'll be disappointed. Eventually, they're going to fall over and let you down and your career might not go the way you hoped and your money might run out and the relationship might not work out and your family might not turn out the way you hoped that they will. And maybe you'll just wake up one day feeling so empty and thinking, is this really it? If your trust is in those things. But if your hope is anchored into Christ, the one who is indestructible, raised from the dead and into this new creation that he is giving to his people, then nothing can take away your purpose and your hope. Even the setbacks and the sufferings that you face, horrible as it may be, Paul says, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Because it's making heaven all the more sweet. It's it's helping you to anchor your life there. In other words, if you have heaven, you'll come to see that this world is not all that it's cracked up to be. We're waiting for something more, something better. And one day, if you've trusted Christ, you'll open your eyes up in a new world with him. And you'll see face to face the one whom you have seen by faith. And you'll walk not by faith, but by sight. And you're not going into an unknown world, but you're going into the world of being deeply known by your Father, by the Son, by the Holy Spirit, the God who arranged for you to be plucked out of this world and to belong to him by his grace alone. That is the amazing hope that we have.